You can keep Jonah chapter 3 open this morning as we study it together. And our theme for today is revival. We saw in chapter 1 the theme of rebellion, Jonah's rebellion against God. We saw his repentance in chapter 2. And here in chapter 3 we see revival. They were a fairly ordinary group and you wouldn't have thought that anything really remarkable would happen in their lives. But in 1857, uh, several young men by the names of James McQuilkin, Jeremiah McNeely, Robert Carlyle and John Wallace, all very well named, uh, began meeting regularly for prayer in an old schoolhouse near Kells. Having been deeply convicted by their pastor's preaching the previous Lord's Day, They prayed together for revival in their congregation and the surrounding district. A few months later, that little prayer meeting had swelled to 50 people. Soon after that, 16 prayer meetings were held every night, adding up to about 100 prayer meetings every week in one church. And not long after that, revival was sweeping the villages, towns and cities of Ulster. Thousands of people were converted through the preaching of the word and the prayers of God's people. Just a few ordinary young men doing what God had told them to do. And God in response surged through the country by the power of his spirit. When something or someone is revived they suddenly have new life breathed into them. And we've probably all seen it even if we haven't seen it happen for real. Uh, Some of you maybe have seen it happen for real, but we've all seen it happen uh, portrayed on TV. Someone has had a terrible accident or something has happened to them and someone has to give them CPR and new life is breathed into them and they gulp the air in and they come almost as it were back from the dead. That's what revival is. New life where there seemed to be death. And the God of the Bible is a God who revives He revives individuals and communities and sometimes even he revives nations as he has done in these islands in the past. Jonah chapter 3 gives us another example of such a revival. What an encouragement this chapter should be to us friends living in the time and place that we do and and this particular week when by God willing uh, God's word will be preached in our town and has been preached in the last few weeks as well. Uh, But we come ourselves to take our turn in preaching the word to our town this week. If God is willing, friends, he can bring revival anytime, anywhere, by the power of his word and spirit. So we want to see some features of revival as we have them here in Jonah chapter 3. First of all, we notice today from this chapter that revival begins with God's servants. Revival begins with God's servants, with God's people. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Now, does that sound at all familiar? It's the exact same command that God gave to Jonah back in chapter 1. Jonah here has been given a gracious second chance by God. Go to the city I told you to go to in the first place. Preach the message that I told you to preach in the first place. Obey my voice. We don't know how long it was after Jonah was back on dry land. That God called him a second time to go to Nineveh. But whenever this call came. I wonder was Jonah surprised to get it. 
What was he thinking as God, in whatever way it was, spoke to him again? God could have gone and used someone else while Jonah was in the fish. He could have said, Jonah, you've had your chance. I gave you the opportunity to serve me in this way. You decided to sin. I'll go and use someone else. But God gives Jonah a second chance to be used in his service to obey. Remember, as we saw last Lord's Day evening, friends, Jonah had repented to God of his sin. We saw that in chapter 2. And now God graciously lets his repentant servant enter his service once more. He's given the exact same task and sent on his way. Look how Jonah responds in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. He arose and he went. Chapter 1, he went down to Joppa, tried to go off to Tarshish, went in the opposite direction. Now at last, he obeys. And we see here in Jonah that the change of mind and the change of heart and the change of behavior that we said all are hallmarks of repentance. It's not true repentance without all those three things. And chapter 3 very purposefully is written to contrast with chapter 1. The direction Jonah goes in. The the speed with which Jonah obeys. When he heard the message the first time, he understood it perfectly well, but he didn't like it. Now he thinks differently and he feels differently and he acts differently in response to God. And God here, friends, has restored Jonah with a purpose. He doesn't restore him and say, you don't get to do the things that you did before. He restores him and he gives him the same task to do again. He restores him for a purpose. Good question for us to ask ourselves is, friends, what has God saved us for? What has God restored us for? Ultimately, God has granted salvation to sinners for his own glory. For his own pleasure, God has simply chosen to do it because he, because he is God. His, his ways are not our ways. He doesn't need repentant sinners in any shape or form. He chooses to do it because it gives him glory. But it's also true to say that God has specific purposes for each of us who have been born again by his grace, who are repentant sinners. He's given us not just one second chance, he's given us hundreds of second chances if we're Christians here this morning. He's had to listen to us come and repent of the same foolish sins again and again and again. And he has forgiven us and restored us to his service again and again. The question is, what does he want us to do? Jonah's job wasn't any easier now than it was the first time God came to him. In some ways, it it wasn't any more appealing. He still had to go and preach to these people, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, whom he hated and who hated him and hated his nation. But Jonah goes in response to God's graciousness, in response to God graciously giving him this second chance. He obeys the God who has called him. And if God has saved you and saved me from our sins, friends, he has things he wants us to do. Even if we're not called to be prophets or preachers like Jonah was. Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 10, We are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works. To do good works, which God, he says, prepared in advance for us to do. So God not only predestined us to be saved, he has predestined us to serve. To do things for the glory of God. Maybe he wants you to suffer well through a trial of some kind. Maybe the sickness is there or the inconvenience is there. The the hardship is there so that others would see that in you. That contrary to what they may have been believing. Health and wealth are not the most important things to have in life. That there is a peace and a joy and a contentment that can be had. Even without health and wealth. It's called many of us here today to be parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles to covenant children. And some of our good works will involve discipling them and nurturing them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's called many of you here to be leaders, ordained or not, in the church. It's easy to become resentful or selfish sometimes about the responsibilities God gives to us whether in church life or elsewhere even to begrudge the things God has called us to do like Jonah did and yet God has called us to do them so will we do them obediently and gladly perhaps he has called you to be a witness in some person's life Some of you had opportunities for that just yesterday in the town or you've had opportunities in recent weeks as you've passed along an invite to friends or family. And it's not just these times when we have meetings to invite people to, of course, that we're to be witnesses. Should we not pray that he would call our church and the wider church and others with us to be doing the good work of witness to This needy island in which we live, the the least reached English speaking part of the world. Where people are emotionally broken and lonely and suicide rates are soaring. And only 1% of this island calls its earth, of the Republic of Ireland, calls itself evangelical. In the midst of a very confused day and age in which we live, friends, we are called to be doing good works, prepared in advance for us to do, to the glory of God. Revival doesn't start out there. Revival starts in here, in the hearts and lives of God's people. And if he has been so gracious to forgive us our sin and restore our soul, he has done it so that we would be of use in his service. What is he asking us to do today? Uh, Revival begins with God's servants. Secondly, revival is powered by God's word. Revival is powered by God's word. We read in verse 3 of Jonah chapter 3 that Nineveh was a city three days journey in breadth. Now that's not to say that it would take Jonah three days to walk if he just set out and was doing nothing but walking from one side of Nineveh to the other that it would take him three days. And the evidence would, would count against that. Uh, what, this is, what this phrase more likely means is that this city was so busy, there was so much to see, there were so many people in it, that if you really wanted to have a proper visit to Nineveh, it would take you three days. There's also some evidence to suggest that if you were a foreigner coming into a city like this in the ancient world, that the protocol was that you took a three-day visit. That on day one you sought out the authorities, you presented your credentials, you let the city know who you were, the city officials. 
And then on day two you could go about your business. And then on day two you would wrap up and you would head off. And so perhaps those are some of the explanations as to, as to that phrase there in verse 3. But, but notice what it says in verse 4. That Jonah got to work immediately. Verse 4. Going a day's journey. So just day one. Whatever the protocols may have been. Going a day's journey. He called out 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah called out He proclaimed God's message. He stuck to God's word. And what's the result? We'll cover it more in our last point. But just look at verse 5. The people believed God. Notice they believed God, not Jonah. Yes, Jonah preached God's message. But it was God speaking to these people through his servant. Giving them his message. The people believed God. Friends, when God brings revival by the power of his Holy Spirit, working in and through Christians and then in and through their neighbours, he does it through the preaching of his word. Is that always a popular thing? No. Is it what people want to hear? No. Does it make those of us who do it, either preachers or or, or you and your own personal witness, does it make us feel strong or impressive or this will really get people's attention or this will really cause people to respect us? No. Has God told us to do it? Yes. Revival is powered by God's word. We need to preach God's word. We need to know God's word. We need to explain God's word. We need to trust In the power of God's word. And not in gimmicks. Or man-made traditions. It will be a year next month since the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. People have been reflecting on almost a year of King Charles III's reign. I was interested to read this weekend that the king uh, apparently watched back a replay of his coronation. And apparently, quote, had a quiet satisfaction that it went as well as it did on the day. Uh, One newspaper report says there was only one detail that riled the king. Riled the king. Quote, I know he was dead against a sermon, but the Archbishop of Canterbury was adamant. Quote, I think the king felt the service was long enough and didn't need a sermon. There wasn't one at Queen Elizabeth's coronation. But Justin Welby delivered the first sermon at a coronation in more than a hundred years. And sadly today, many churches have come to the same opinion as the king. Many churches have simply stopped preaching the gospel in an effort to appeal to the people whose names are on their roll, but who are no longer there when worship takes place. And many churches have in effect said, okay, we won't talk about sin. We won't expect you to come to an evening service because you'd rather go to a cafe and take a photo of your coffee on Instagram. We won't preach because you'd rather sing feel-good songs. Okay, okay, whatever you want. And it's no surprise that in such places there is no fruit. So another headline this weekend, the Church of England has given its blessing to people this morning staying home to watch the England Women's Football World Cup final instead of going to church. And 
Churches are shortening their services or putting a big screen up afterwards so that people can watch it in church. A church desperately trying to remain relevant and with every step they take in doing so becoming increasingly irrelevant. It's also the case, of course, that in many places where God's word is preached, we often don't see as much fruit as we would like. Why? Because human beings are dead in sin. And it takes a miraculous work of God to revive their souls. God did revive souls in Nineveh by the power of his word proclaimed. And if you look back through history, friends, every time there has been revival, it has come the same way. Not through the church compromising and trying desperate attempts to attract the world, but through prayer and preaching. Prayer and preaching. Charles Spurgeon once said this on the subject of revival. When the good old truth is once more preached by men whose lips are touched as with a live coal from off the altar, this shall be the instrument in the hand of the Spirit for bringing about a great and thorough revival of religion in the land. We don't prioritise preaching because it's attractive to the world. The king isn't the only one who has a low view of it. If you ever hear preaching or sermons mentioned, it's usually in a pretty negative way. Some politician uh, eagerly putting forth some new policy and someone says, oh, it sounds very much like you're preaching to us about this, Mr. So-and-so. Oh, no, 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 no. We don't want to be preaching at anyone. Preaching and proclaiming the gospel seems like utter foolishness to the world. And do you not think Jonah might have looked very foolish to these Ninevites, this weird little Hebrew appearing in town, his skin probably bleached from being in a fish's belly, walking around their beautiful modern city, declaring that the God of Israel, who were seen as an inferior nation to them, was about to overthrow them. What foolishness. A waste of time in the ears of idol-worshipping pagans, surely. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 23 of that chapter, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God And the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. The drumbeat of the New Testament friends is the preaching of the word. We read it earlier in Mark's gospel. What did Jesus come and do? He proclaimed repent the kingdom is at hand. And when Jesus had ascended into heaven. And left his apostles to continue the work on earth. How did they do that work? Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches, chapter 2, sorry, Peter preaches at Pentecost and 3,000 souls are saved. Paul, in one of his very last writings, 2 Timothy chapter 4, commands young Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. He says to the Colossians, pray for me that I might proclaim God's word boldly as I should And so friends, as we have been inviting people and praying for people in these days that they would come and hear the word of God, I want us to be strong in our conviction that this is exactly what we should be doing. Prioritizing the word. Whether it's preached from the pulpit, 
whether you speak it yourselves to your neighbours, your loved ones, your colleagues, whether we're out doing it on the streets of the town, because it is the entrance of God's word that brings light. There are all kinds of things we could do. All kinds of attractive things that the world would embrace. We could pack out that assembly hall every night this week by doing certain things. But God has commanded us to do this thing. His word used by his spirit according to his will when he chooses revives souls. So may we stick to our task and believe that revival is powered by God's word. Revival begins with God's servants. Revival is powered by God's word. And finally this morning, revival results in sinners repenting and God relenting. Revival results in sinners repenting and God relenting. In Jonah chapter 2, we saw that repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart and a change of behavior. And that's exactly what we see in these Ninevites. Look at verse 8. The king of Nineveh, the, the ruler of the city, declares, Let every man, what does he say? Turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Said last week, those in the BB or GB know that uh, an about turn is when you're going one direction, you turn 180 degrees, you go in the opposite direction. And that's what repentance is, spiritually speaking. And that's what the Ninevites do. They, they turn, they change their mind. They describe what once they thought of as perhaps entertainment or worship. They describe it as violence. They change how they think about things. Look at verse 5. They believed God. And what did they do? Verse 5. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. And verse 6 says that the king did the same. That was a display of sorrow. This shows their change of heart. Again, they're no longer okay with the things they used to do. They're broken hearted about it. They, 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 they think about it and they, they feel, it, feel differently about it. Uh, that, that sackcloth and fasting and so forth is always in the Bible. It's a, it's a mark of the, the, the deepest, most sincere grief. And, and in some cases, repentance as it is here. Real remorse, real sorrow, a change of heart. And then there's the change of behaviour in the middle of verse 8. Let them call out mightily to who? To God. The God of Jonah, the, the God of Israel, their, their neighbours whom the Assyrians hated and probably assumed to be a bit of a joke of a nation by this point. Let's not miss how remarkable this is. A foreign pagan superpower that had never... Uh, never in its history known or worshipped the living God. In a world where if you were stronger economically or militarily than your neighbour, it was assumed that your God or your gods were stronger than the God of that nation. And yet here the stronger, mightier Assyrians worship the God of Israel. So thoroughgoing is the repentance that even the animals have to take part in the fast, we're told. That's how serious the Ninevites were about their repentance. These savage, power-hungry rapists, these people who had skinned their enemies alive, who killed babies either in the womb or outside the womb when they were attacking their enemies, who worshipped multiple gods and goddesses. Here they are repenting. 
The whole city from the least to the greatest. This is miraculous. This is God's spirit reviving dead sinners. Look how God responds. Verse 10. When God saw what they did. It says God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. These people turn away from their sin. And so God turns away from his judgment. Now you might ask, well, does this not mean that God changed his mind? And surely God never does change his mind. Uh, If you have a King James Version, actually the the word is translated that God uh, repented of the disaster or the the, the evil that was going to come upon these people. Uh, And although I'm sure it was a perfectly good translation at the time, that might be a confusing word for us today because we use the word repent today really only to refer to someone turning from sin. And of course, God never has to uh, and never will turn from sin. He, he's sinless. And, and so that's not what the translation meant, of course. But it's emphasizing a drastic turning from God in response to the turning of these people. What does this mean, though? We know God doesn't change his mind, but what is happening here? He, he said he would destroy the Ninevites, and then he doesn't destroy the Ninevites. In fact, friends, what we see throughout the Bible is consistency from God in dealing with sinners and with sinners who repent. Just listen to the words of Jeremiah 18, verse 7. If at any time, this is God speaking, Jeremiah 18, verse 7. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So what God's saying there, and and you can find similar, if you think about how God had laid out the promises to the Israelites as they made their way into the promised land, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. God had always said that he would treat sinners the same way and repentant sinners the same way. It's really up to us. Rebellion will be met with God's judgment. Or we can change. We can repent. And repentance will be met with God's mercy. And in that way friends. God is perfectly consistent. Here's how one writer has put it. It was wicked. Violent. Unrighteous. Proud Nineveh. That God had threatened to destroy. But a city sitting in sackcloth and ashes and appealing to God's mercy. That Nineveh he had never threatened. That Nineveh he visited not with ruin. He had never said he would. So God will always punish unrepentant wickedness. And he will always reward repentance. He will always forgive the repentant. As he shows here in his dealings with Nineveh. Revival leads to sinners repenting and to God relenting. And so we should live, friends, with the fervent hope that unless Christ returns first, that we would live to see God revive us again and do mighty work through his word and spirit in our time and in our place. He won't do it if we are self-reliant. He won't do it if the church persists in man-centered Man-pleasing ministries and strategies. 
He will do it when we pray and when we trust in the foolishness of preaching to revive sinners. In 1949, the last Christian missionary from Western Europe got thrown out of China as the communists took over and banned all religion and the Christians were thrown out. And the Christian missionaries of the Western world were saying to themselves, well, China's finished. No more hope for China. There's, there's no missionary there anymore. But God didn't want Westerners to preach the gospel in China. He wanted the Chinese to preach the gospel in China. And today, more people have worshipped God this Lord's Day in China than in all of Europe. Very soon there could be more Christians in China than there are people in the United States. Because God's word is being preached. And in the foolishness of house churches and underground churches and pastors imprisoned and pastors who seem humanly speaking powerless in the face of the Chinese communist government's persecution, God delights to do his work, making the wisdom of the world look foolish through the preaching of his word and the power of his spirit. And he's doing similar things in other places as well. And he could do it here too. He's done it before. We should pray that he would do it again. And we must believe in the power of God's word and spirit to revive sinners and even to revive nations. How wonderful it would be to arrive at a day when our nation publicly mourns our disregard for God's law. When our king repents of thinking so little of God's word. And when our leaders genuinely and wholeheartedly call for national repentance. Revival starts when, with God's, when God calls his people. It is powered by the preaching of God's word. And it results in sinners repenting and God relenting. May we pray for that reviving work in our midst, friends, as his word is preached here by his grace. Amen.